Hi and welcome to The Rock. The Apostle Paul left his young protege, Titus, on the island of Crete to finish the work of establishing biblically qualified pastors in every town. He writes Titus with instructions on how to do this and how to build a healthy church that can impact the world for the gospel. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse -verse study through the book of Titus entitled, Finish the Work. Alrighty, it is time to pick back up again. We left off in the middle of Titus chapter 2. We're going to pick back up now and not before asking the Lord for his blessing. So let's do that. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the joy that we have in our hearts, that we have a Father and that you're good to us and that you have good things in store for us. And part of that is to learn and to grow and to hear your voice this morning through the message, through the God-breathed word before us. So speak to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you had to sum up all of Christianity in one word, you just get one word, what would that one word be? I'm going to tell you what I think it would be. It would be grace. Grace is what the gospel's all about. In fact, uh, the anthem of the gospel, a song, a hymn that has been sung uh, 200 plus years, uh, says it all. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Go ahead. You've heard it. I thought so. And of course you've heard it because it's the most recorded song in the history of the world. 66 books, 1,189 1, chapters, 31,102 verses in the Bible, and one stanza written so beautifully and sensitively really sums it all up pretty much What's more to say, an undeserving soul who was once wretched and lost and condemned to die, not just once, but twice. The second death is what really is disconcerting, but now rescued and found all because of God's unmerited favor. Unmerited favor is the classical definition of God's grace. Cliff Barrows who partnered with Billy Graham for uh, 70 years, traveling around the world as his music director. Uh, he had led the song Amazing Grace thousands and thousands of times. And he said this about that great hymn. He said, Amazing Grace will always be around as long as there is sin in the world, a need for forgiveness, and the longing to have a living, loving Savior. And so I guess it's going to be some while until, of course, we see that Savior face to face. Amazing grace. Well, as, a, as amazing as grace is, there's something also amazing about it. 
it's amazing that most people don't understand what it truly is. And before we're saved, this amazing grace can, can really be offensive to some people because of what it implies about us that we need grace. And uh, once we receive the grace, I think sometimes a lot of people just kind of see it as a pass to be kind of sloppy in our Christian lives. And so there's a lot to say about what grace is, what it's not, and the purpose that God has to grant us this kind of grace. So if you are confused in any way, if anyone doesn't isn't clear on the, these ideas, the Apostle Paul has written very clearly, and none of his readers will be left in any confusion, especially there in first century Crete, an island there in the Mediterranean. He is writing to Titus, and he here in chapter 2, he's going to clear up any confusion anybody might have about what God's grace is all about, it gets clearly defined once and for all. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Starting in verse 11, for the grace of God, that amazing grace that brings salvation, has appeared to all mankind. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we're waiting, while we're looking for that blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Now, really, only four verses this morning, but it's a gold mine indeed. Man, you could preach for a year straight and never exhaust the, the wonder, the beauty, the amazing quality of what it means to be given God's grace. And so here's a call really to, A, understand what grace is so that you can, B, cooperate with it because there are many people who don't understand what it is. Therefore, they, they do not uh, reap the benefits but forfeit the grace and the benefits that could be theirs because of a lack of understanding. And we're going to talk about that. The passage only four verses, it divides quite nicely in half. So we have 11 and 12. We've got the grace that transforms us, note takers. And there is a home fellowship group tonight, so uh, extra notes are um, a good thing. So number one is the grace that transforms us. You're looking at it, verses 11 and 12, followed by verses 13 and 14, a hope that inspires, a hope that motivates us. Grace that changes us, and a hope that motivates us to make those changes. Let's dive in. So first, always need some context, especially if you have a four for the first word, because four is a conjunction. And you remember the song, right? Conjunction, junction, what is your function, right? <laughs> and the function of this conjunction <laughs> is to connect you with the preceding verses. So the preceding verses in this case are very important to understand why he's explaining what the grace of God is useful for. So 
Uh, what was he talking about in verses 1 through 10? Well, if you weren't here, he was saying, whoever you are, however old you are, whatever gender you are, whatever station in life, man, woman, married, single, young or old, slave or free, if you've named the name of the Lord, you have to depart from sinful ways and embrace the new life because you represent Christ. And so the reasons one through 10 gave all of us for moral living was that the outside world <laughs> was watching and we represent the gospel and, and Christ himself. And so our lives have to match with integrity the beautiful gospel and the character and nature of Christ himself for that to be effective, right? I mean, come on. A Christian witness is important, and that was the big deal of verses 1 through 10. It would be like an obese person who is trying to pass themselves off as a fitness trainer, right? So it just, uh, it's, you just, it's a joke, right? And so it is the same thing as a Christian trying to pass them off themselves off as a Christian, and yet they're full of gossip, and they're full of all kinds of immorality, and dishonesty, and they're lazy at work, and a problem in their marriage, and all of this, and you call yourself a Christian. That was Titus's, the uh, letter to Titus, 1 through 10, was all about your life has to be like Christ's life, because Christ is in you. And now, he says, because, you have to live that way because actually it's the very purpose of what grace is given for. The very purpose of salvation and what Christ is doing in our hearts and lives is more importantly than even what the world thinks is actually, pragmatically speaking, that's what grace is. And if you're truly saved, you received a grace that is at work to transform you into a morally upright person like Christ. And so that's why the four is there. So let's dive in. Uh, before we can understand the purpose of grace, we need to talk through two lethal misunderstandings about that grace. We can isolate uh, the first part, verses 11 and 12, and talk about this amazing grace. So, so God's grace covers sin, and thank God for that. That's the joy. It covers our sin, but it doesn't stop there. It changes our lives. It changes our hearts. It gives us new desires to no longer live that way. And so grace is at work in our hearts. So the two lethal misunderstandings are on two ends. The first one, I think verse 11 talks about, that the grace of God has to come to you in order for you to be saved. That's verse 11. And the problem with that is it offends people. It hurts people's pride that they're not good enough and that they need grace. So we'll talk about that. And then verse 12 um, once we receive grace, as I already alluded to, uh, we're tempted to just misuse it because after all, we're saved by grace. So what's one little sin here because I'm covered by grace? It's just the opposite, the Holy Spirit says. That just the, the contrary to everything God intended grace to be for you. So let's, 
Look at verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all mankind. Now, one scholar put it this way. He said, uh, paraphrased, he's saying God's grace appeared in human history. The word for appeared there is to, to, to break forth out of darkness. And it's where we get the word epiphany from. So the grace of God appeared in human form and in human history through Christ's birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. Now, it's Jesus Christ, the fullness of God in a body, full of grace and truth, who freely brings the offer of gracious eternal life and offers it freely to all mankind, whosoever. That's grace. Whosoever. Whatever you've done. Whosoever. Grace. God's unmerited favor. Now, so to the problem, think of what grace uh, implies. It implies it. He says right there, in order to be saved, God's grace has to be brought to you. You can't go out and get it, get busy and earn it, uh, like most religions on this earth tell you to do so. Christianity is much different. It requires you to do nothing but accept the fact that you are powerless to do anything and you need a handout. And there's nothing that is more wounding to especially a man's pride is to tell him that you're unable, you're powerless. Spiritually speaking, you're impotent. You can not do what God requires for you to be saved. You have no redeeming qualities whatsoever. It's amazing grace that has to come to you. Somebody was telling me years ago, they went to a funeral just to show you how offensive amazing grace is. Went to a funeral and the song leader changed the words to the song. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved someone like me. Yeah, why? Because I'm not saying that I'm a wretch because I'm, quite frankly, a pretty good guy. Now, you've taken the amazing out of grace because for a good man, somebody might dare to die. But for a wicked man, for a wretch, for a liar, for a cheater, for someone who's spiritually dead and estranged because they are steeped in sins, and yet qualifies for eternal life to live and to reign and to rule with Christ, to be co-heirs with him for eternity and be a wretch. That's amazing. And because of your pride, you have excluded yourself from receiving the one thing that will qualify you to get yourself to heaven. Well, that's not how the world thinks, and that's why it's so offensive and so hard, because the world works on the merit system. You study hard, get good grades, there's going to be some applause, and uh, you're going to end up uh, getting offered a job. You train hard and discipline your body, and you'll get applause, and, and you'll get a place on the team. You work hard, and you excel at your job. You'll get applause, and you'll get your promotion, right? On earth, that's the way it works. But when it comes to getting to heaven, 
It doesn't work that way, though. Everyone thinks it does. Ask anybody at Santa Rosa Mall today. I dare you. And I, I will be proven right. Ask them this. How do you get to heaven? If there is a heaven, how do you think you get there? Everyone will say something about being a good person, and they're 100% wrong. Good people don't go to heaven because for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's not a question of good or bad. It's about being born again. It's not about being good. This is what the Bible says. And here's the offense, right? Study hard. Train hard. You want to try to get to heaven? Work hard. Give away all your possessions to the poor. Save a hundred lives. Adopt 20 orphans. Feed the hungry. Do a thousand good deeds. Do 10,000 selfless acts a month. And then take a bullet for somebody and without the grace of God, received while you were alive, you will die and perish and be condemned for all eternity. That's offensive. That's offensive. But it's true. I've got a picture of why, why it doesn't matter what kind of good you manage to do, even though you're spiritually dead. And some people do a lot of good things, but it's not enough. Here's the reason why. Here's the picture. It cost a sacrifice, a trade of your penalty, your sin had to be punished in justice. And so this is what it took to save you. Then how good do you have to be? You're going to say, I don't need that. Oh, you do need this. This is the only way in. Every good person, so-called, that does anything good can't match the blood of sinless God in a body offering a life and saying, let's swap. Let's pretend I'm you. Father God, take out your wrath on John and Mary and on me. And then whosoever since I paid their way in, whosoever simply believes in me, I'll give them by grace what they could never earn in their own efforts. Galatians chapter 3 says, if you could be put right with God by doing good things, then Christ died for nothing. He died for us. Thank you for that picture. I think it says everything we need to know. That's why Jesus said this. Here's the deal. He says, not good or bad, because he's talking to Nicodemus, who was, for all intents and purposes, a pretty good guy. He was a Pharisee. Not about being good, Nicodemus. It's about becoming alive. You were born spiritually, stillborn, estranged. Adam and Eve, our parents, were told, if you disconnect from me, you will die spiritually and your children will be born disconnected. So the problem in life is not to be good since you're spiritually dead in your sins. It's to be made alive. 
And that is the issue. Made alive people go to heaven, but people who look like they're pretty good people, but they have not experienced the grace and the life and the salvation of God, they perish because there's only one way in. It's to be made alive. And it's offensive when you tell someone, I just said this to somebody, ma'am, you have to be born again. I just cut to the chase. Hey, Jesus just said, if you're born again, you have to be born again. And she said, sir, I was born okay the first time. Do you see? I don't need no second birth. I don't need no amazing grace because I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. I'd give you, and doggone it, people like me. All right. I think you get the point. Let me just close that thought out with this. Ephesians chapter 2 says, We, at one time, were all dead in our sins. But because of God's great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our sins. It's by grace that you've been saved through faith, and it's not through your own efforts. It's the gift of God, not by working at it, lest anyone boast. So, for the grace of God has appeared in Christ, making salvation available to everyone. So that's the scandal. But once we're out of the scandal and we get the grace, then we're a little mixed up about what its purpose is. We certainly think that it's to cover our sins, but we miss the part that it's working in us a change of direction, a change of heart, a change of desires. We miss that part sometimes. And so we're going to talk about that more of concentrating now on verse 12, where it says it trains us. That word teach there is the same word that means a parent uh, training up their child. And so now grace is personified as a person, almost uh, somebody, a teacher who's, who's inside on board telling you, okay, this is the way with the new life comes in. The first order of business is warfare, cooperation with the new nature, the new life, the new grace that's on board is powerful. It's programmed from God to work righteousness and morality and truthfulness. It's in there working, but God's going to say, I need your cooperation. God could do it. He's got all the power in the world, but he chooses to allow us free will and say, cooperate with me. Let my power meet your free will and together through your faith, pow, you're going to have all the power you need to become the person you truly wanted to be in the first place, the person God has created you to be. And so... So to the second idea there now in verse 12, the grace of God doesn't tempt us to sin. It trains us not to sin. So let's talk about what is called cheap grace as we look at now at verse 12. An entire misapprehension, a complete 
utter failure to grasp the purpose of God. Jude 4 says, there are some people out there who pervert the grace of God and make it a license to sin. Now, when people are continuing in a sinful lifestyle and they claim to know Christ, that the grace of salvation and the gospel and the Holy Spirit's come on board, but they remain in sin, 1 John says, you neither know him, you've never seen him, and you're not telling the truth. Because anyone who's born of God who's got this grace that's alive and working to be like Christ on board cannot continue in sin. Yes, of course, we have daily little uh, outbursts of, uh, and slip-ups and all of that, but the, we're talking besetting lifestyle sins. That has to stop because you've received the grace and the grace has taken over like a little yeast got put in the heart, right? And the yeast doesn't just sit still. The yeast isn't happy until it leavens itself through the entire batch. And that's what uh, one of the parables is pointing to. And so the problem of two natures. Look, so he says it teaches you, trains you to say no. Now, if we have to be trained to say no, what does that imply? It implies you have contrary desires on board now. Before you were a Christian, before I was, I had one nature. I knew what I wanted, and I didn't have a problem getting it. Yes, of course, I had a little bit of the conscience, but after you deny that a while, you don't hear it anymore. Amen? I'm sorry. <laughs> I know you know. So we've got these two natures. Let me show it to you, the Paul the Apostle and the Holy Spirit, Galatians so I say to you, if you let the Holy Spirit, the grace of God, the salvation, the presence of Christ who's in your heart guide you, be the dominant principle in your heart, then you will not be doing what your sinful nature is craving. So the sinful nature survives conversion. Check this out. The sinful, verse 17 of Galatians 5. The sinful nature wants to do evil which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. So there's World War III going on inside your own brain and inside your own heart. Welcome to becoming a Christian. Two natures. One says, I want to do this. The other one says, no, you don't. Right? And it's the nature you feed that's going to win the day. It's the nature you get to decide. And this is why he's going to say, you're going to say no to some things and you're going to whistle in the other ones. That's your job as a traffic cop in your own soul. All right, let me finish this verse here. These two forces are constantly fighting each other so you're not free to carry out your good intentions without a fight. That's why Paul says, I have fought the good fight. Then he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I buffet, I beat my own body and make it submit to the law of Christ, lest after preaching to others, I myself am disqualified. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work, but that's what's going on and why we have to do the work. He says, are you overwhelmed? that you have to stop being the old way and start doing things that are against your natural inclination. No worries, here's the remedy. Just say no, just say no. We can go back to that 
our original verses. Just say no. Is it that easy? Yes. That's your problem, sir. Oh, it's so hard. It's so hard to say no. How hard is it? Watch me. No. Oh, that was so hard. I understand what you're saying by that. You know what's hard? To want to say no. That's it. That's why you read in the psalmist, at Psalm 51 this morning, he said, God grant me a willing spirit. If you're not willing, if you don't want to say no, oh, it's so much harder. Right? So he says, say, just say no. That's a strong no. That's not like a no, like no, 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 it's not that. I was walking by a self-defense kind of karate studio. It was summer and the doors were open. There were a line of women and they were training for self-defense, obviously. And the guy had them kind of prepared for an attack because they were all, he's like, shoulders back, confident stance, and say the word. And they all belted out from their diaphragm, from their bellies, from a place that scared me. (laughs) No! I mean, nobody questioned what those ladies wanted within 10 blocks. We knew they were hunkered down, shoulders back. They were present. And they said with everything in their hearts and lives, because there's some dude, some dude is going to do something terrible to them. Some big dude is coming after a woman. And she hunkers down and says, no to save her life. And that's the kind of no you better be saying because it's the same assailant, only a spiritual assassin who has come to ruin your marriage, to take away your career, to split up your family, to ruin the ministry, to set you back years in your Christian life. That's who's in front of you. And he says, the grace of God tells you to tell that thing that beast from the past, no. That's what the word means. I didn't see all that emotion coming. Where's that in my notes? <laughs> but it's what this means totally. We just, we have to say no. Here's the strategy. Um, I love Colossians 3. This is a no. You want to know how how intense the no is? Put to death those things lurking within you. Execute them. Kill your sin. Kill the selfishness that says, I think you just need to just hold a grudge and don't forgive and harden your heart. You know what you need to do with that? He says, not only say no, Put it to death, execute it, and not like with a ballpoint pen, like, oh, you know, oh, I'm gonna kill you, my sin. You know, no, you take the sword and you stick it through the heart of it, once and for all, all the way through, like you really mean it. Which is more painful? The ballpoint pen, oh, 
you know? Or, do you know what I'm talking about? You know, where you're not really like, I'm trying not to do this, but I, you know. Put it to death, things lurking within you. Do you see that? You have things lurking within you. If you need it this way, they lurketh within. Does, <laughs> does that help you? <laughs> have nothing to do with them. Kill them. Sexually sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires. Don't be greedy. A greedy person's like an idolater worshiping the things of the world. And so when you see these things, yeah, he says, you say no. You kill them. You don't negotiate with terrorists. Why don't we negotiate with terrorists? No country does. Why? Because you set the other terrorists up to know that, you know, with the right kind of negotiating, you'll say yes. So zero tolerance to every one of these vices because they don't want to do you any good. Let's take a look at those vices, okay? You're looking at them now. He says, you say no, you repudiate, you abandon, you reject, you deny what? Ungodliness and worldly passions. You see that in verse 12. Ungodliness is really easy to understand because you take godliness and what's godly and you put an un in front of it and just change it around. It's the exact opposite of what we would consider Godly. So he says, you say no to self-centeredness, no to immorality, no to lying, no to gossiping, no to lashing out, no to cussing. You are a Christian. You are a Christian. Christ's Holy Spirit is in you. How is that possible that you allow unwholesome words out of your mouth and in your mind? How is that possible? He says, you put that to death. You just say no. That's what it is there. So when you're being unkind or tempted to be unforgiving and all of these things, you say no. And then he adds, worldly passions also gets a big no. I like the, the, the church fathers are like the men of God from the second, third, and fourth centuries when Christianity was a little toddler. And uh, they came up with seven deadly capital vices. And I think worldly passions really says it. Uh, they really describes worldly passions, sinful cravings. Pride, greed, lust, envy, gluttony and drunkenness come as a pair. Wrath, anger, rage, and sloth. It is from the second century. Laziness, both physically and spiritually speaking. And so he says, yeah, you've got to say no. And here's something that helps. The discipline of reckoning yourself dead. That's what I call it. The discipline of playing dead. Let me show you this. It's very helpful to say no. Uh, Romans 6 and verse 11 so you should also consider yourself to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Now, you are not, uh, the power of sin is around and alive and well. But here's the trick, he says. Grace teaches us this. 
Technically, theologically, spiritually, you're, you, when you got saved, your spirit got united to Christ's death. And, and spiritually, in a mystical way, you died with Christ and you rose with Christ. So he says, in, for all intents and purposes, you died and you've been raised to this new life. If you ignore and play dead and reckon and consider yourself to be dead, then the, the only thing left in there is the power of God. So, for example, he's saying, how are you going to respond to a prompt of sin if you consider yourself dead? So, hey, hey, uh, you know, here's the prompt. Here's the prompt. Consider yourself dead, man. And wow, okay, listen. Dead people, generally speaking, are fairly unresponsive. I say generally speaking because maybe you're mostly dead, as in the Princess Bride, right, with Wesley. And if you're mostly dead, but not all the way dead, that, my friend, is a problem now. So he says, go ahead, insult them. Insult a corpse, seriously. Insult a corpse, tempt them. Put a little feather under some dead guy's chin. All right? And just say, come on, you know you want to laugh. I can make you laugh. I know I can make you laugh. No, you can't. And if you do, then you'll have a heart attack and die and fall over. (laughs) To play dead. I don't want to play dead. That's your problem. But Paul will make the case, you are dead. If you're a Christian, that old you died That's what you said at your baptism. I died. My old life is buried, dead, gone, disconnected, and up came a new me. So either you're the new creation in Christ or you're not. Then live like it. And here's what you do. You're a traffic cop. You're in there going no to ungodliness and worldly passions and yes to three things. Here are the three things. Uh, and they look in three directions. If you, if you, you can put the verse back. Thank you. Inwardly, outwardly, and upwardly, the three positives. So no, no to the bad traffic, and yes to the good traffic. Inwardly, to self-control. So you say no to wild and unrestrained and lawless behavior. Who cares? Just do it. Who cares? Self-control says... God cares, and self-mastery is important. The second thing he says, outwardly, is to be upright. So you say no to the wrong thing and yes to doing the right thing. The third thing is an upward look. And he says, godliness, then no to being irreverent and disrespecting God and yes to devotion and obedience. So you're, you're doing this all day long. You see it all day long. So, so hatefulness, selfishness, dishonesty pull up at the intersection and they're waiting to go and they're honking and they're like throwing their heads out the window like, come on, give us the go-ahead. They need your go-ahead. They need your go-ahead. And then you become culpable when you wave them through. God says you don't have to wave them through. You tell them, no, no, red light. Red light. Now you're free to look at The other three, (laughs) kindness and goodness and integrity. And while they're at bay, 
by the power of the Spirit. You whistle on it, and here they come. Every time, 100% of the time, you will find it. It's just a question, are you willing? It's just a question, are you willing? Well, how does that power work? I'll tell you what, here's faith and your will and God's power, and here's how they meet. Here's how, what a beautiful picture in Luke chapter 7. The Lord is being tested by the Pharisees. He's in uh, the Capernaum uh, synagogue on the Sabbath, and they're wondering if he's going to heal on the Sabbath. Well, that's a side issue. He calls out this guy, and he decides to heal. And, he, and the man stands up, and he says, you, stand up. And he stands up. The man has what's called a withered hand. It's palsied. He had a stroke. Uh, it was, he was born that way, a birth defect, but the hand is withered. All right? So he says, in front of everybody, Jesus commands him and says, man, I say to you, stretch forth that hand. Now, there's a couple things the guy could be thinking. The guy could be thinking, I've never stretched forth my hand. And Jesus, can't you tell that it's broken? It's weak. It has no power. That's why it's withered. If I could, I would. I mean, really, he's looking in a withered hand and Jesus is saying, move it. And he goes, okay, I guess I can. And Jesus is saying, I can. I, ah, right? His will, his faith that that man can give a command. And if I try to do it, even though I'm looking at this, it's going to happen for me. This power is going to come from somewhere and he thinks it's going to be there. So I take him at his word and my weakness and my will, my paralysis isn't denied. It's just changed. It's empowered. So the next time you say, oh, I can't say no to lust. And he says, say no. No. Thank us a power, but you've got to cooperate. You've got to stand there. You've got to hear the word. You've got to obey it. You've got to try to, to, to obey even though you've got a withered hand. And every single vice and every single virtue that we mentioned, we don't have the power. It's withered within us. And he says, at my word, with faith, Activate it. Act as if it doesn't, isn't withered, and you will see the power of God in every single thing in your marriage. I can't love him or her. You're withered. And he says, love her, love him. Okay. It happens. That's the ticket. That's the ticket. Listen, obey, have faith. You'll see the power. Now we move on from the grace that transforms and close up with uh, the hope that inspires us. Let's read that again while we wait. So all of this struggle and fighting and all of this work and all of this intensity, it's going to be worth it. And he's going to give you a little inspiration now. 
we are doing this fighting while we're watching and looking and waiting for the big ticket item, the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Now, this beautiful hope right here that uh, inspires us. You know what? It's a lot of work to deny yourselves the temporary pleasures of sin. Hebrews says, chapter 11, that sin is pleasurable for a season. Why else would we love it so much? Now, to deny yourself and to pick up your cross and to follow and to constantly be telling yourself no all day long on multiple occasions, multiple times in a day, it's a lot of work. Running the intersection of sinfulness and godliness and trying to work all of that out, but not for a person, not for love, not for our God and Savior. Notice the deity of Christ. Where in the Bible does it say Jesus is God? Right there. He's the only one appearing, and he's our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But I'll tell you what, I could do anything for him. I really could. And the funny thing about it is what his death that he died the first time was to liberate you from the very thing you want to do. To purify for himself someone that belongs to him and looks like him and acts like him. To, to redeem us, to buy us back from the devil, to buy us back from the bondage of sin. The whole purpose of giving himself and bleeding out and suffering and agonizing death was to set us free and give us grace to cover us, to free us from those very things that we keep pursuing. How demented, how insulting, how illogical that we would still be running after the things that Jesus bled out for to free us from and we're looking for little ways to still get some of that in our lives. That's not the purpose of grace. That wasn't the purpose of his death on our behalf and it says that right there. Why would you try to do something for which Jesus shed his blood to free you from. Once the grace of God gets in your heart and you want to please him because you're waiting for the blessed hope and that's all that we're doing is waiting. That's our job. And while we wait, we're slugging it out. We're trying to, to make the gospel attractive to outsiders. We're trying to become, embrace the new life of grace that God put in us and we're waiting. That's all we're doing. We're occupying and waiting. Somebody asked me at Mulsberry's in line. I said, sorry, man, for the wait. Wow, it was a long line. I said, no, dude, I'm good. I'm good. I'm just waiting around. And he goes, yeah, you seem pretty mellow, like you're just hanging out. And I said, I'm just waiting for the Lord to come back, you know? <laughs> and I said it nice and loud, and a hush fell over Mulsberry's. <laughs> Oh, okay. So he changed, his, he changed his subject. 
That's what we're doing. We're waiting. We're looking. And, and, and so 1 John chapter 3 says this. If you have this blessed hope burning in your heart that in a second from now, that you could hear a trumpet sound, the voice of the archangel, and that you, in a twinkling of an eye, will be changed and see the face of the one who created you and spoke and the universe leapt into existence. If you have that burning desire and passion in your heart, you will want to be ready. You will want to die to things that may seem like they're helpful, but actually they're poisonous in the first place. That's the strangest thing of it all, is that the very attitudes and worldviews and, 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 and sins that we're attracted to, they're poisonous. And we are so deluded that we buy the lie and when we embrace them, we find out later how poisonous they were, but they, they always look so yummy in the beginning and so good. And that's what got our mother Eve into a problem because it looked good and it sounded right and it looked like it would be helpful. And look at us. Got into a lot of trouble that way, didn't we? So that's what he's saying. The very reason he bled out and died for us was to was to set us free from all of this and to belong to him. He's holy. We got to be holy. We belong to him. And so just finishing up here, you know, he says, we're waiting for that blessed hope. Look, Jesus said, here's how it's going to come down. As lightning flashes and lights the sky from east to west, that's going to be like when I come again in the clouds and the glory of heaven. Jesus' own words. And then in Revelation, it says, look, he's coming in the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who murdered him. They're in a place, but they will be able to see because every eye will see in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, this glorious appearing that's in that moment that you will be glad you said no, that you played dead to it, that you ate dirt and humbled yourself and extended mercy and softened your heart and did the right thing in that moment that's coming. And he says, I'm coming soon. It's sooner, way sooner than any of you know or think either. You're going to go to him or he's coming to you. Either way, you've got an appointment with him face to face. And in that moment, all of the slugging out all of the picking up your cross, all of the you first, not me, let me serve you. It's not what I feel, it's, it's how, how do I contribute to our marriage? Those kinds of issues will be worth it when we see him face to face. Let's pray together. Father God, we are thankful for your living word that spoke to our hearts this morning, now apply it to us, Lord. We, we've been given, we've been enlightened with the word of truth that sets our hearts free. So help us to put it into practice now. Help us, Lord, as we consider your death on our behalf. Now communion time, we pray that we'd get some fresh insight. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Well, you know the timing of this. We just go through the scriptures verse by verse, right? And so it always amazes me that Communion Sunday falls on passages like today. It's just that the Lord is a multitasker. What can I say? He's real, way ahead of the game. And so, you know, the free gift of eternal life, the grace, free grace, free grace, it actually was quite expensive. And that's part of the reason he says, you, you don't want to sin because of how costly your free grace was. It cost his blood, his life, and that agony to where God himself in a body would cry out, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? He had to forsake him because of all those sins that we still love. That's why he's forsaking Jesus. For the very things that we're still longing for and playing around with. He says, could you just knock it off? Just stop it. He lays down his life. Gives his life for us. A ransom. To purchase us back to himself. And so we're going to do that now. We're going to remember the Lord's death on our behalf. So you'll be served the bread in the cup, there, there, there's two cups, it, and you can't see the bread, as you most of you know. So take the two cups, they're stacked, and the bread's underneath it. When everybody's served after we've worshiped a song, then I'll come back and we'll take communion together. So brothers, please serve us. So now we have a new insight for this morning. The joy of knowing our sins and all of our falling short, whew, covered by his blood so that we can be free from those kinds of things to live a life above reproach, a godly life, to say no to those things he just covered and cleansed. So it's a new slate. Now the reason for that is not to go out and start building them up again, start to go out say no to those things that we just washed away and yes to all the fruit of the Holy Spirit that's already on board don't have to look hard for it just stretch forth that hand and it'll happen on the night Jesus was betrayed Passover he took the bread and he broke it and he said I want you to think of My broken body as like food, like bread keeps you alive, food keeps you alive. What I did is like something that'll keep you alive if you ingest it by faith into your heart, like food, keeps you physically alive. My action on the cross will keep you spiritually alive. So let's take the bread. And when you drink the cup, you're saying, I'm not a good person, I'm actually a wretch. And I needed you to sacrifice and lay down on a piece of wood that you created and bleed out for me. Because that was my only hope and it's my only plea. If anyone asks me in heaven, what are you doing here? I've got one thing to say. Christ shed his blood for me. And I said, yes, let's drink the cup. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. 
Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.